I'm Rob Trzinski. This is Salon of the Refused, where we talk about ideas that are outside the mainstream. My guest today is Alex Berezow, who's Vice President of Scientific Affairs with the American Council of Science and Health. Thanks for coming on, Alex. Uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, now, I, I know you, you, you're with the ACSH now. I know you from back in the old days when you were with uh, Real Clear Science, and I was doing other things for Real Clear. So I'm trying to sort of, uh, I remember fondly some of your pieces from back then, and we've been following some of what you've been doing since then. So I wanted to get you on. Now, you do, de- ACSH does debunking of junk science. Yeah, we were founded in 1978 um, with the purpose of fixing a lot of the misinformation in the media uh, in regard to science. And uh, we've been around, like I said, for 40 years, 41 years now. And I think there's actually more junk to debunk now than ever before. So uh, we're, we're still in existence. Yeah, I don't think you're going to run out of uh, no. uh, run out of flim flam to 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 take on. All right. So I wanted to talk about a couple of things based on some of your recent columns, uh, uh, some things that are uh, bad science that's been in the news or misrepresentations of science that have been in the news and especially in the political news. So one thing that if for those of us who follow politics, one thing we've seen recently is the little minor controversy over Elizabeth Warren getting her DNA tested to back up the claim that she is, in fact, part Cherokee and then it coming back and various claims saying, oh, it's show, it shows that she's one 1024th part Cherokee. So what's up with the DNA test? How accurate are they really? What do they really tell us about about us? Sure. So, you know, when you when you're doing a DNA test, it doesn't really make any sense to just have results without a comparison group to look at, you know, what do other Americans have? And unfortunately for Elizabeth Warren, almost Americans, random white person from Manhattan or Chicago or San Francisco. And if they have been in the United States for any length of time, almost certainly they're going to have some Native American DNA, maybe a you know percentage point or two. And the reason for that is, is that contrary to popular belief, we actually didn't wipe out the Native Americans. We actually married a lot of them. And so uh, there's been a lot of uh, intermixing and um, it is extremely common for average Americans to have a, a little bit of Native American DNA, and there is nothing special about Elizabeth Warren's DNA. She's right in there with every other American. Yeah, and, and you know, even the thing about uh, uh, the you know, what I remember reading about that is that the uh, marker that they use to say who's Native American, who's not Native American, is not necessarily a hundred percent accurate either, because they use some Mesoamerican group as a proxy. I remember having my DNA tested that it was uh, – uh, it originally came back uh, saying that I was 9% Iberian Peninsula, which you know is, is, <laughs> was kind of a surprise and a shock to me. Then they came back and said, oh, we have more accurate results, and that 9% Iberian Peninsula seemed to morph into – uh, the Baltics, which is, you know, yeah, <laughs> those, those are kind of far away. So there's a lot of imprecision in terms of what are the markers for one person versus what are the markers for markers for another. Yeah. And, and what are what they are, um, what they do with Native Americans is that a lot of Native Americans are not interested in these DNA analyses because they're feeling like they're being exploited for various reasons. And so they have actually we actually don't have a lot of DNA from actual Native Americans. So because of this, we have to use proxies, people from Peru, from Colombia, from Mexico. And that's the DNA uh, to which uh, Elizabeth Warren's was compared. And uh, as well, you have to look at the fact that um, when you're looking at a DNA test, it's sort of like looking at a horoscope. Um, The best thing that a genetic 
tests can do is generally show you where your where your geographical your biogeographical origin is. So genetic tests are good at saying, okay, we think that you come from the Caucasus regions of, of of Russia, or we think that you're from the Middle East or something. But they're not good at saying we think that your family is this. Like we we don't even have the ability to determine if someone is Cherokee or Apache or Hopi or you know all the various tribes that have existed. We have no idea. There's no way to detect any of that. Yeah. And so uh, unless you do the hard work of looking at birth certificates, death certificates, marriage certificates, and building a family tree, genetic test is sort of like a horoscope. Well, and I think that's a good comparison because uh, it's almost like, you know, and the way that we advertise it, you know, find out who you are. They advertise it oftentimes based on the story that you want to hear about yourself, which mm -hmm. is, you know, the, the, the story might be comforting. It might be nice. It might be interesting to you, might be entertaining to you. But in terms of actually telling you who you are, DNA, even if they can get it accurately, isn't really all that important. It's more the story than the science. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And, and it's certainly absurd for Elizabeth Warren to claim any Native American culture, which she had been trying to do, uh, based on the fact that somebody, you know, four or five generations ago was Native American. I mean, she didn't grow up on, uh, you know, grow in Native American culture. But, you know, the way she talks about her heritage, it makes it sound like she was living in a teepee and smoking peyote, but she wasn't doing any of that stuff, right? And so that is really uh, quite shocking how uh, the Cherokee tribe actually came out and said, stop, stop what you're doing. Stop saying things like this because you're not a tribe member. It was uh, it was pretty shocking how, how much they condemned Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, going on from that, uh, I want to talk about a couple other issues. Uh, you, I'm, now, you, you do a range of things, and I'm sort of picking some of the political hot buttons here, uh, some of which are going to be more partisan things that people get upset about. Some of them are going to be things, things, things a little more we can go a little more in depth on. But one of the others is this idea, this issue of transgender athletes. Now, I guess this ties into the sense of, you know, this idea of does your DNA say much about who you are? So we've had a couple stories recently about uh, – uh, a, a, usually a, a transgender athlete coming in and usually, you know, walloping uh, uh, women in, in, in female sports and the controversy of should they be allowed? Now, there's two kinds of stories I've seen in that. One is the male to female transgender athlete who is a man who has transitioned to become a female. But, you know, you look at them and they're they're tall and they're burly and they're really they're really big people compared to the women they're competing against. The other one I see is uh, the female to male, uh, uh, the, the, the girl who's transitioning from female to male. She's still competing in the female category, but she's taking testosterone, which would be, you know, a, a considered doping if you were doing that uh, in another context. So uh, right. let's talk about this issue of, of should, you know, does being biologically male or female make a fundamental difference in athletics? Uh, absolutely. So, you know, for instance, um, th there are all sorts of biological differences between men and women that are not obvious, that are that are more than skin deep, mm -hmm. right? So the average male has more red blood cells than the average female, okay? Now, you, you might think, well, who cares? Well, it matters because if you have more red blood cells, you can carry more oxygen than someone who has fewer red blood cells. Right. It, it matters men, if you're running a marathon. <laughs> exactly right. And so if you're running a marathon, 
having extra red blood cells will get you maybe closer to that finish line than someone has fewer red blood cells. In fact, it's why blood cell doping is a thing. People will save up their blood cells and they'll package them and then before a big event, they'll inject themselves with their own blood. What's well, cheating? And the reason it's cheating is because you're artificially boosting your oxygen supply. Uh, men and women have different builds in terms of their legs. Uh, women are more prone to getting ACL tears simply because their legs are built a little bit differently than a man's because of the, because they have wider hips. So, uh, yeah, there are a lot of biological differences, um, structural differences in our skeletons and muscles, uh, that make a very large impact at the elite level of sports. There's a reason that Usain Bolt is the fastest man in the world, and he's a he's a full second faster than the fastest woman in the world. And that's not because of the male patriarchy. It's not because of sexism. It's because of biology. Men are simply faster than women. And and uh, the, one of the claims I've heard used is well, well, we can use biomarkers instead. We can you know measure the testosterone levels and show that the testosterone levels are not artificially high. So therefore. She's not really getting an advantage. Now, this is in one of the cases where there was a, a female wrestler who was going, undergoing testosterone treatments and transitioning and saying, well, but my testosterone levels aren't too high. And, but what about you know, the, the use of the biomarkers doesn't change all that other stuff. It doesn't really serve as, a, as an adequate proxy for whether it's a fair comp competition. Uh, well, so it gets complicated once you get into biomarkers because the question is, is which biomarkers are relevant. Right. And there are many, many, many different biomarkers you can look at, not just testosterone, but you could be looking at, uh, you know, several other hormones. You could be looking at red blood cell content, muscle mass. I mean, there are so many different things you'd have to look at. Here's the, the bigger question we have to answer. There are some people biologically who are of ambiguous gender or they have a, a chromosomal abnormality or a difference that makes them uh, unique. Um, for instance, there's so most people are either born with with two X chromosomes, which makes them biologically female, or they're born with an, an X chromosome and a Y chromosome, which makes them biologically male. But that's not true for everybody. Some people are born with three sex chromosomes. There's a, there's a condition known as Klinefelter syndrome where a, a man is born with two X chromosomes and a Y chromosome. And they have lower testosterone levels. They have gender dysphoria where they feel like a woman, but they're actually a man. Uh, there's another condition called Swire syndrome where biological males, so XY, have an abnormality on the Y chromosome where they actually physically develop as females. And a lot of these people will actually not even know it until they hit puberty that they go, oh, I'm not having menstruation. What's going on? And they go to the doctor and they find out you're actually a male even though you look like a girl on the outside. And so the question is, is what do we do with people who have these kinds of conditions? If they want to be athletes, well, they should be able to play sports. But where do you play? Where do you put them? And I think uh, that's a legitimate question, uh, although I agree with you that when you've got, you know, some fairly sizable person who is going through a gender, you know, change and they're saying, well, I'm, I'm a woman now, uh, that presents a challenge, right? Because biologically, they certainly don't look like it. They don't they have the biomarkers for it. And I think that uh, we may want to have some sort of rule in place because that doesn't seem to be fair. And th there was a, a case of a woman named, well, a man who's transitioning to a woman named Rachel McKinnon right. is a pretty sizable person. 
and she, you know, beat all the biological males, uh, biological females in this bicycling race, as you would expect, because right. she's much bigger than all the and, other. And, ones. and if you see the photos, I mean, you know, it's it's a it's like an eight inch yeah, height difference and wide shoulders and yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, I don't know the cause of her transgender what the underlying cause is, and it's not my position to judge it. But if you're looking just from a from an objective athletic fairness standpoint, you can understand why the women in the race were saying this isn't fair, right? And so, um, yeah, we need to, to grapple with this topic, and I don't think that our society is grappling with it in a particularly productive way at the moment. Right. Well, I, I think that one of the problems is summed up in, in uh, uh, Rachel McKinnon's reply to this, uh, these complaints to saying that, you know, uh, that that gender is socially constructed and not biological. Uh, yeah. And and again, it's the idea that, you know, here's a story I'm going to tell about how about what gender is, as opposed to the underlying right. scientific facts about it. That's a total rejection of biology. Anyone who says that that gender is a social construct uh, to, to an extent, we we place some social uh, social baggage on gender. But uh, but no, it is largely biologically determined, and to reject that, to to not acknowledge that, is basically rejecting biology textbooks. Right, I mean, right. this is a it's a ridiculous position to hold. Well, you know, I, I think it, it's it's sensible to say there are uh, cultural associations we have with gender that are subject to you know uh, social conventions and and uh, habits and customs. But yeah, it's but it's based on t- built on top of the underlying real measurable scientifically verifiable biological difference correct yeah now i probably i think the most substantive issue i want to bring up today and it's one that where science impinges on a on major issue of public policy because a lot of this you know transgender stuff it, it, it affects the people who are in the sports uh it, it's something that people like to fight about on twitter and and have the sort of culture war arguments about right but this is one that's, uh, I think, a bigger issue, more of a life and death issue, which is the opioid crisis. Sure. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of narratives being put out about it in politics that I want to get an idea of what actually is the underlying, you know, scientifically in terms of the numbers, in terms of the actual causes of what's happening here to get an idea of what, what science has to contribute to that debate. Sure. Uh, and first of all, let's start. What is an opioid? So an opioid is, is – so opioids are drugs that are, that are derived from opium or they're similar to drugs that are derived from opium. So think of like morphine, uh, heroin as an, as an opioid. And these drugs are uh, nervous system depressants, which is why if you overdose on them, what happens is that you stop – you slowly stop breathing and you basically go to sleep and you don't wake up. And that, that's how people overdose. Uh, the number of people who are dying from opioid overdoses is just staggering. It, it's 72,000 Americans died from drug over from drug overdoses into overall, with with opioids being the leading cause. Um, and that was in 2017. And, that, and that's uh, several multiples of the people who die in car accidents these days. Oh like, yeah, yeah, it's 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 because we've uh, we've done so much to make cars safer that the numbers have gone down. Yeah, and then this is soaring beyond it. Yeah. It's double the number of car crash fatalities and quadruple the number of homicides. I mean, it's 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 a staggering number. The dominant media narrative is that it's big pharma. They're they're to blame for this, and that is it is so overly simplistic that it's I would say it's bordering a lie. Uh, so here's what happened. Um, first of all, we have to recognize that there have been op- there's been drug crises in this country 
for decades, right? Back in the 80s and 90s, there was a crack epidemic. Right. Uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, a methamphetamine epidemic. You can't blame Big Pharma for that because they don't prescribe methamphetamines to people. They don't. You don't go to your doctor and he's like, "Hey, why don't you go to the corner and get some crack?" <laughs> right? So, no, that you can't blame Big Pharma for that. So the role they did play, though, was that in, in the mid '90s, a drug uh, called OxyContin came out, and it was an opioid that that was that was said by its manufacturer, Purdue, that it was not as addictive as other opioids, and it ended up not being true. And as the number of prescriptions for OxyContin and other opioids increased, people were becoming hooked to it. Unfortunately, the, the market got flooded with a lot of these drugs. And the reason is because doctors were kind of lackadaisical and they're prescribing. They would, you know, you'd say, oh, I've got some pain. And they would say, you know, maybe you needed it for a week. You had some surgery, you know, dental right. surgery. And instead of giving you a week of opioid prescription, they give you a month. Okay. So a lot of these drugs ended up falling into the wrong hands. They fell into the hands of drug users, abusers, teenagers, people who shouldn't have had them. Right. Well, once that happened, uh, for, for basically lying about their drug and, uh, they then decided to re release an abuse resistant form of Oxycontin. So what, what drug abusers would do is they would take Oxycontin, they would smash it. And then you would take that and smash it. You'd melt it or whatever and inject it into your veins. So you get well, a faster high. It, it, the time right. release, so, you'd overcome the time release and you get the fast high. That's right. So what, what Purdue did was they decided, well, we're not going to make Oxycontin crushable anymore. Now, if you try to crush it, it'll turn into this gooey mess and right. it's totally unusable. So it was called abuse-proof Oxycontin. Well, the problem with that is, is that once you're hooked, uh, you still want your fix. So people started turning to heroin instead. And the problem with heroin is that it's dangerous. Um, you know, your local drug dealer probably shouldn't be trusted. <laughs> you know, I know what kind of country have we gotten into when you can't trust your local drug dealer? I, I get it. But <laughs> no, what, but the, this is a guy, this is a guy who probably failed high school chemistry and you're not, yeah, you're not relying so, on him for a pharmacological product you're going to put into your body. Yeah. This isn't breaking bad stuff. You're not getting the good stuff, right? <laughs> so, uh, what we're finding now is that heroin is being contaminated on purpose with a drug called fentanyl. And fentanyl is an extremely potent drug. It's about 50 times more potent than morphine. And uh, three milligrams is enough to overdose. And three milligrams, if you take a salt shaker and shake out a couple of little crystals of salt, that's three milligrams. So if you, the drug isn't cut properly, uh, you can easily overdose. And what we're finding now is that even though opioid prescriptions from doctors is way down. The number of opioid deaths is way up. And really, the number of overdose deaths from Vicodin and Oxycontin and these, these prescription drugs has remained unchanged in the past seven or eight years, while fentanyl and heroin deaths have skyrocketed. And so it is, it is an illegal drug problem among recreational users. That is the by far the number one cause of this crisis. It is not... Uh, uh, big pharma. Now, the other the other uh, question I had about that, the other big media narrative more on the right is that these are the quote unquote deaths of despair. 
that is, you know, these are people who are have, you know, they're, they're hopeless in life and they have nothing to live for. So they become addicted to drugs and they overdose. And uh, it's sort of like a way of saying this is, you know, blame it all on China because, you know, we had free trade with China and they lost their factory right. jobs and that's why they're dying. This is sort of the Tucker Carlson narrative recently. Uh, and, you know, this may get into more like the causes of, well, why do people become drug addicts? But I also mm -hmm. noticed in a lot of these cases, if you look at the personal histories involved, these people were not in despair before they became addicted. They became, in, you know, they, they had their, their, the crash of their prospects came after the addiction. That, yeah, know. addiction is complicated, and uh, you know we always are looking for scapegoats. We want to blame somebody for our problems, and um, you know we know that the opioid crisis has hit rural America particularly hard. So d does economic uh, misfortune play a role in this? I'm sure it does. I mean, a lot of people are driven to drinking because of economic yeah. misfortune. But as I said before. Uh, we have had drug crises forever in this country from from we've had a heroin epidemic before back in the 80s yeah. as well. Yeah. And so you cannot just point to China and say it's their fault. Uh, we have struggled as as Americans with addiction in this country for decades. And so I don't think it's convenient or correct to I mean, it may be convenient, but it's not correct to blame China or, or some other country for our problems. Now, the other suggestive thing to me is that, you know, they talk about this happens in rural America, but the when you map out the overdose deaths, they tend to follow the highways, you know, they follow, tend to follow, you know, route, route 40 going, you know, going across Ohio, that sort of thing, uh, because that's where the illegal drugs are moving. So you get some, you know, dealer comes up with a new dose of fentanyl laced heroin or fentanyl, fentanyl, something with fentanyl in it and sends out a shipment and it goes up the highway and then people get it. Who people who live near the highway, they're the ones who get it first. They, they get the most of it. That's where you see the overdose deaths. So in a way, I mean, I think the one of the suggestive things here is the extent to which drug prohibition is a contributor to this. Because instead of being able to get treatment or instead of being able to get a safer version of the drug, mm -hmm. uh, these people are getting the least safe version of the drug. Right. That, so, and, and this is a huge, a huge topic here in Seattle. We're, we're actually thinking, we've been debating this for a while, of having safe injection sites where people can go and, and inject drugs safely. They're going to these safe injection sites and, you know, they're not using contaminated needles and they're getting the drugs they need. But if you're not helping them get off the drug, then, you know, what use you're essentially just enabling them, you know? And so th this is actually a really complicated topic and I, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure what the correct solution to this problem is because the, the nature of addiction is so complicated. Um, it's it's a tough it's a tough nut to crack. Yeah, yeah, I understand that, and, and I think you know the the point you've made that that oftentimes you know because people don't know how to look at statistics, they don't know how to look at the history of things. They see oh, a bunch of people are dying from this one drug. This is an unprecedented phenomenon, and they don't realize that it may just be a change in fashion as it were from oh, yeah. you know the drug that was popular 10 years ago has switched over to a new drug that's popular now that's become for one reason or another easier to get and so you know you're not seeing a necessarily a fundamental change in society you're seeing a change from one thing to another that looks magnified beyond what it really is yes and i also think that you'd mentioned earlier about treating this as a public health issue i think that's exactly the way to go. I don't think that declaring war on drugs 
you know, has worked very well. And so I would like to see us treated as a public health issue. In Portugal, I believe it was Portugal that legalized all drugs. Now, is that the right solution? I don't know. But uh, from what I understand, Portugal has getting its drug has gotten its drug problem under control by treating it as a public health issue. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we should head in that direction and, and treat this as a these people need our help and we should be helping them rather than punishing them. Right, exactly. Treat it more as public as a public health or as a health crisis than as a law enforcement issue or Correct. or even as a border security issue, which is correct. I, I, correct. I'm not going to get into this. This is out. This is more of a law enforcement thing. But the, the, the other aspect of this is that most of the fentanyl coming in is being smuggled through ports of entry. It's not coming correct. across the border. Right. It, correct. So a wall, know, a wall won't fix this problem because <laughs> well, with, fentanyl, with fentanyl in particular, it's so powerful. You need this very tiny amount uh, so it's easy to, you know, ship by FedEx from China, uh, yep. yeah, from, a, from a lab and an unethical lab in China, ship that by FedEx to the U.S., get it through border. It's a lot easier yep. to do that than smuggling, you know, uh, uh, you know, 40 kilos of, of, of cocaine on the back of a <laughs> back of an illegal immigrant crossing the Rio Grande, uh, which That's I guess right. is the, the image people have in their minds. Yeah, that's the image people have, but it's not accurate. You are absolutely correct that most of the illegal drugs are coming in through legal ports of entry. That's right. All right. So the issue I want to end on for our, today's discussion, and I, I'd love to have you back in the future to talk about some other things, science issues sure. as they come up in, uh, uh, in, in, in the news. But the issue I want to end on is that, you know, I've, I've, as I've started podcasting, I realized if I really want to make it in the radio business, I should be selling nutritional supplements. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I found out a while back, though, this is, this is, you know, Alex Jones, the crazy conspiracy theory guy. You think yeah, he, he's yeah. a millionaire because he sells conspiracy theories. No, he's a millionaire because he sells bogus uh, nutritional supplements. So that leads me to the overall question of nutrition and the science of nutrition and the various ways in which that is used and misused. Uh, one, one thing you, you, you suggested at one point, uh, and you didn't quite put it this way, but that nutrition is a, in a way a victim of its own success. That, you know, having identified a lot of the big important nutritional facts, like, you know, the different vitamins and things like that, they're now have gone down to dealing with the small stuff. Yeah, that's right. So we uh, we have solved all the major problems in nutrition. Uh, we don't get scurvy anymore because we know to get you know drink vitamin C. We we don't get all sorts of other diseases berry berry that were that was the result of various vitamin deficiencies. We know that babies need certain nutrients at certain times, and so we give it to them. And and so now we're obsessed with linking food to cancer and to Alzheimer's disease and to all sorts of things that because we we've really solved all the big problems and now we're trying to we're always looking to be scared of something right and uh, we're also always looking for quick fixes to to tough problems you know obesity obesity is a problem but the answer to salute the answer to obesity is not to eat more blueberries it's not a superfood it's to exercise and eat less and yeah. that's not a and that's not something Americans want to hear because it requires discipline and accountability. And who likes discipline and accountability, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, a, a number of years ago, I lost I lost some weight. I put a little bit back on when I had kids, but I, I lost a fair bit of weight. And a friend of mine said, well, how did you do it? Tell me your secret. And he says, and I said, well, I just exercised and I ate less. And he said, isn't there a pill or something? Can't you please, please tell me there's a pill? You know, <laughs> right, it, 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 it's, right. it's what people want to know. I, I also think, you know, they want to have, I, I think the big thing people because I've been observing the weight loss stuff for a long time. I think the big thing people want to be told is 
you can eat anything you want so long as it's this one thing or it's, you know, as long as it's superfoods or or right. you know they they want to be told you don't have to have the discipline of uh, of of actually controlling how much you eat in your portions or or what have you you can do whatever you like so long as you follow this one weird trick that will that will solve it for you yeah and you know if you if you look back at american history we have a long history of this you know mr haney from green acres right he had he had potions in the back of his truck that he wanted to sell people and this was we go back you know a, a century or more on on uh Snake, literally snake oil salesmen going around selling right. things that were magical cures. Americans are very optimistic, and I think that that optimism sometimes turns into gullibility, mm -hmm. where we think that there are quick fixes to complicated problems. All I need is a pill or this one exercise regimen, and I'm going to live forever. And the reality is a lot more boring than that. The reality is that you know you you've got to you've got a diet, you've got to exercise. You got to watch what you eat. You've got to be, you know, you don't have to be a, a Puritan and not ever having a piece of cake, but you can't have three pieces of cake, right? You, you only have a little bit of cake. Well, by the way, the, the, as, yeah. the, the flip side of this is something I heard a brilliant identification, a psychiatrist who identified what he called orthorexia. And it's, a, it's an eating disorder that involves a, an obsession with eating right. And the idea yeah, is you know, it's, it's, it's the people who say, well, you know, health eating healthy always consists to them of eliminating something from your diet. Oh, yeah, I can't eat dairy and I can't eat gluten and I can't eat this and I yeah, can't eat that. No, it's crazy. I, I eat whatever I want, but I also realize that I can't eat as, as much. much as I want. Yeah, right? right. And so I'll I have cake. I like dessert. In fact I usually have a piece of something every day, but I don't eat the whole thing. I'll I'll have a few bites, put the rest in the refrigerator and I'll say, Well, I'll have some more tomorrow. You know, it's just discipline. And uh, and it also involves a little bit of luck too. You know, my family's all thin, so genetically we're probably right. we we probably burn more energy than other people or something. I, I don't know, but uh, yeah, you, it requires discipline and a little bit of good luck. But there are no magic solutions. You there are no pills you need to buy. Just be disciplined. Now the other thing I've observed in nutrition is the way they kind of I think rely on people's lack of training with the use of statistics. So, oh, sure. you know, and this comes across a lot of times where you have studying the effect of eating broccoli, right? And, and it, it's this tiny little effect. And if you actually understand the way to look at the numbers, the effect they're measuring in statistically in terms of the outcome of two different, you know, their, their test group versus the control group, it's a very, very, very small effect. And oh, yeah. really doesn't, isn't that meaningful, but some of the ways they express it, you know, you're 50% more likely to get cancer. You know, the, the yes. fifty percent difference on a tiny, tiny little number. Yes, yes. This is the difference between absolute risk and relative risk, mm -hmm. and th this comes through clear as a bell on cancer studies. People will say, "Well, if you do this one thing, if you go to you know Beijing one time, your risk of this cancer has been doubled." Well, and it's you know from one in a million to two in a million or something, right? Sorry, you know, right. it's something absurdly small, and so yeah, that that they. Do do that on purpose. They they will play up these percentages to make it look like a much bigger impact than it actually is, and that's because people don't understand relative risk versus absolute risk. I, I completely agree with you. And, and using those projections, I think I think it may have been one of your articles I saw that there was somebody who who did a survey of studies and, and calculated that by by eating a certain group of foods, he could extend his lifespan by 150 years. 
<laughs> I don't know if that well, was I don't know if that was one of your articles or somewhere else when I saw that, but uh, you know that's yeah, because you keep yeah, saying these things, you eat really this absurd and... conclusions. Yeah, if you believe everything you read in nutrition in the media, you come up with these absolutely absurd conclusions. And so, um, yeah, the the real solution is you know moderation and everything and discipline. And I think also recognizing now this this goes to another issue that I think we should discuss in more length another time, but that this issue of uh, the world that we live in is actually pretty pretty amazing. Uh, there's been huge amounts of progress made, but people are still motivated by the scare stories and the and the uh, the, the negatives and oh this thing's going to give you cancer and that thing's going to give you cancer when in fact we eat in in America you know and in the in the Western world. Uh, the developed world, we eat a really good, healthy diet on the whole. And we, you know, our, our body is not besieged by toxins yeah. in, every, in every corner. That, that, that's right. You know, life has been getting better uh, steadily uh, since the dawn of man. We, we've, we're living longer. We're living healthier. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a real shame because people are always looking for something to be afraid of or scared of when we are living in probably the most, well, not probably, the most prosperous, safest time to ever have ever been alive. Steven Pinker talks a lot about this. This is right, one of right. his key themes in uh, Enlightenment Now and uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, that we are actually living in a golden age and we should stop worrying so much and be thankful that we're living in 2019. I agreed. Well, I'm thankful that you came on to the show and uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this conversation, you'll find more uh, ideas and analysis at the Trzinski Letter, TrzinskiLetter.com. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel, subscribe to our podcast, uh, and you can support us at Patreon, patreon.com slash Salon of the Refused. I'm Rob Trzinski. This is Salon of the Refused. Thank you for listening.